0: Just go to Indeed.com/slash Blue Wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's indeed.com slash Bluewire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: Welcome into another edition of the Josh Hendrickson Show. I'm Neil McCready. I'm joined here in the Clark Ford Studios, as you might expect, by Josh Hendrickson, the chair of economics at Ole Miss. Kind enough uh to spend some time with us here on this late Wednesday afternoon of uh of game week. It's uh it's Ole Miss Alabama week. I'm getting everybody else's opinion on Lane Kiffin's Twitter on uh on this game, this how big of a game it is for uh for the rebels. You're there on the campus. Is there a is there a
2: palpable buzz this week? I think people are excited. I I think that So I got here the last year of Houston Nut. Uh, so I got to enjoy oh, that season. What a year, year that year. was. That was amazing. Um, but actually, like, there there's always been a lot of excitement around Alabama, even just when – because when Freeze was here, you know, they beat Alabama a couple times. And so, you know, people forget that, like, for college kids, what your historical record against a team is doesn't matter. And so those years after they beat Alabama, it's like there were – students on campus that just acted like, yeah, this is just how things are. Right. We just, (laughs) Of course we beat Alabama, you know, and it's like, no, uh, that's actually rare. And, uh, but yeah. So I, I think ever since then, really, uh, with, you know, the exception of, uh, the few down years that we had in between, I think, uh, there's always excitement around Alabama. Lane Kiffin poking the bear a smart thing, or is it just, is it a
1: non-factor or is it just funny? because the castle's crumbling thing. I mean, it was not exactly subtle.
2: I think I have a different perspective than a lot of people on this because my perspective on college football changed a lot when I started having college football players in my classroom. And I started looking at them differently and I started looking at college football differently and you you realize why college is so much different than the NFL. And a lot of it is is like these yes, these are Young men, but in a lot of ways they're still boys. You know, like they're they're in the process of growing up, right? And so, the guy who forgot to turn in his homework—it's not surprising (laughs) that like he blows a coverage or something (laughs) like that, right? Like it's and and so you you kind of look at it differently. And when Lane came, I was excited about Lane coming, but not necessarily. I, I didn't know how successful he would be, but I was excited because the thing that i always felt like when i got here is that people didn't realize that old miss should be hiring like big name coaches like why wouldn't they hire a a big name coach the the idea that you couldn't get somebody like Rizzo. Lane Kiffin to come here Rizzo come here it's okay that had, was uh, Rizzo, Rizzo
1: the dog has entered the uh, Clark Ford studios and i'm always just worried about him knocking a camera over
2: sorry to interrupt no that's all right but I was excited because it was like uh oh we're we're gonna play with the big boys kind of thing. That that yeah. to me that was the that was the signal that was sent. And you know, what comes with that is Lane's personality and and this is this is what you get with Lane. And I think that it's fun. It gets the university and the team a lot of attention, which I think is good. I, I'm I, I am a believer that, you know. The attention that you get is really, um, you know, whether people are talking about you because they think what he's doing is ridiculous or whether they're talking about it because they think it's funny or because they think it's great or whatever. Like, I think that it doesn't matter what the reason is. That publicity is good publicity. But I also think that you can't do this kind of stuff and lose. You have to you have to win. Not every time, obviously, like nobody expects them to beat Alabama every year. But if like if Lane is here for let's say six years or something and he goes 0 six against Alabama and in year six like he's tweeting about Nick Saban or or whatever, then it's just gonna kinda get old at that yeah, point. No, that's why
1: I think I think Saturday's really big. I, I've I've got this funny feeling all week that this is like this a big game. It's either gonna be a really big win or a really big loss. And I don't mean points. I just mean significance. Like I think if they win, I I think they, they the program takes a jump. And I think if they lose I think some people are going to be like, "Okay, can we stop at the gimmicks and let's just let's just play?" I, I do sense that. Maybe I'm completely off. You would you would be far more in tune with that than I would be because you're there on campus. But this is kind of the sense I get. I I, I sense that it's it's really big. Um, all right, we'll shift gears and stuff. People want to hear you talk about. Um, you mentioned to me you want to talk about gas prices because gas prices appear to be heading up as we. Um, as we head to the holidays, getting closer to the holidays, you know how football season works. It goes really fast. Week after week after week, you get Saturday, Sunday, then you go back and then Saturday, Sunday, and then you look up and it's Halloween, and then you look up it's Thanksgiving, and then you look up it's Christmas, and all of a sudden it's the Super Bowl, and and, and so it goes really fast, and here we are, and it won't be long until we're into those travel months and things like that, and I'm curious what your thoughts is, are about why gas prices are what they are and what's going to happen to them over the next few months.
2: Well, I think this is just one of the things that I wish more people were talking about writing about thinking about because we've taken actions, you know, against Russia uh, due to the war with Ukraine. Um, so we have sanctions on the Russians in the Middle East. You know, they, they, haven't been increasing production. Uh, in fact, like you know, they've been having some modest cuts in production recently. The Biden administration has not created a climate in which people in the oil and gas business want to actually invest in the oil and gas business. When you start your presidency, saying like we're going to end the fossil fuel industry, uh, that doesn't. That doesn't. Uh, the,
1: the, the, I, I mean, I got to be honest. Yeah. The, 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 you're okay, buddy.
2: The thing about Biden – Rizzo heard my
1: voice go up. He's like, oh, God, what's wrong? Um, The thing about Biden and that election is I'm surprised – people talk about the Hunter Biden laptop and all that stuff. The thing that I am surprised never really resonated was it was pretty clear that the Democrats, Biden, everyone, wanted to um, end fossil fuels. They want to go to all electric cars by, what is it, 2035, I think is the number, which is – Really, a, a credit to them. Strategically, it's always great, right, to put this pie in the sky thing out twenty years, fifteen years, because nobody thinks about fifteen years. We all think about, hey, it's Wednesday. What are we having for dinner? What, are, what, 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 where does little Johnny have to go tomorrow? What time's the game? You know, you're thinking. No, very few people are like, hey, you know what? Let's let's talk about twenty years from now, honey. That, that's a conversation that you just don't have very often. You're You're not even thinking about, hey, what are we doing for Christmas, right? It's like Christmas. My God, what are we doing Friday? So they put that out there, and then they win. And, hey, they said they'd do it, and here they go. And to me, the idea, like you and I have talked about this before, there's idealistic world and there's real world. The idealistic world where everybody just has like a battery-powered car and they drive around, and nobody needs gas, and there's no exhaust, and you plug in your car at night, and you get up the next morning, and you can just go anywhere you want, and it's almost like the Jetsons, right? I mean, you just hop up and boom, fly off, and everything's good, and that's, that's so far from the real world that it's completely unrealistic, and I'm not saying electric cars are bad at all. I have neighbors that have them and they're cool, right? I mean, they just drive around town and they come home and they plug them up and they just drive around town. Awesome. Great. But the idea that we're going to mandate that across the board in a country this big where people travel and people have to drive to work and people have to drive for work and people have are traveling salespeople or people you know what I'm saying? And people are just out is ludicrous. We don't have the infrastructure for it. We're nowhere close to the infrastructure for it. It's before you even discuss the idea of, well, how do you actually make the batteries? How do you dispose of the batteries? How do we create charging stations where people can fill up electrically the same way that we fill up with with petrol right now? How does that work? And no one ever even dives into that because it's taboo now to say, I think this is stupid. I think it's a bad idea. I, I, there's, I, I think we we need to be energy independent. We need to be drilling in our country. We need to be doing those things. We need to. That's not politically correct, so no one says it. Yet, it's in my opinion, and you're far smarter and more commonsensical than I am. It's the common sense
2: approach. Well, number one, it makes no sense to come out and say, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna you know end this industry." So, first of all, even if your objective is to just create. Uh, a world of electric cars, then that would kind of take care of itself, wouldn't it? So you don't have to actually come out and announce that you're going to get rid of the industry that uh, by announcing it, what you're doing is you're, you're saying like, this is my intent. My intent is to take down this industry. In which case, what's their incentive to invest? Why do I want to invest? Why do I want to explore? Why do I want to, uh, you know, drill new areas? I like th- there, there's no reason to do that because you don't know what the policy is going to be like and you don't know what the next regulation that's going to come down the line is. You don't know what the next punishment is going to be. And I think the thing that people aren't thinking about is that most of the growth in the oil supply was coming from like these shale wells. And all of the reports uh, that, that I'm seeing are saying that these shale wells aren't producing as much oil as, uh, as they were. And so that growth is not going to be able to keep up with demand. And this is the fundamental problem with this electric vehicle future is that they're not just saying they want an electric vehicle future. They're, they're basically saying we want electric vehicles now. And doing it now is not feasible. It, it, it's just not feasible at all.
1: It's literally like me saying, hey, I, I want a head full of hair, and I want it right now. I don't want to have to take medicine. I don't want to have to go think about transplants or something. No, I just want hair now. Yeah, And, and there's
2: no way to do that. Yeah. And so they're, they're, they're trying to do something that's impossible to do now. And here's the problem. If demand outpaces supply, then oil prices start going up. But normally what happens is this encourages oil companies to go out and drill more. So maybe you go and you find, uh, you know, new wells that you, that you can drill. Well, a lot of companies were doing that when interest rates were, you know, one, two percent. But now interest rates are not one or two percent anymore. You know, now interest rates for you know for one of these firms is gonna be like six percent. And so if it's gonna be six percent, well maybe some of these projects aren't as aren't as feasible as, as you think. And so we have this problem where gas prices look like they're going to be going up um because we're just faced with tons of headwinds in this uh, in in this industry, and also we should also point out that like they've completely drained like the strategic oil reserve. Yeah, so it's not like we could be like, hey guys, don't worry about it. We'll start releasing some of this oil. You know, no, they they've just been draining that uh, that reserve. A story that's basically gone uncovered. Yeah, no one no one talks about it outside of you know people who cover oil markets or um, or, or investors. And they're just pushing full speed ahead on the electric vehicle thing, and i don't have a I, like you i don't i don't have a problem with electric vehicles, but I don't think that we're going to eliminate an entire industry uh I think the oil and gas industry will be around uh regardless of what happens with the electric vehicles um and we don't and and like you said we we don't have the infrastructure for this. Who who's going to be doing all of the charging? Like if you go to California, California already has rolling blackouts because, you know, they basically operate like a third world country out there in terms of their energy policy. And so they already have rolling blackouts. And so we want everybody in California in in a world of rolling blackouts to all be driving electric vehicles. That this just seems completely insane. It's 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 bizarre insane, right? It, 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 and it's you and I've
1: talked about this before, so I won't belabor it. It's policy that is made by people who live in a small little area of the country that is population-dense, D.C. You can get on a train in D.C. and get to New York, Philly, right? I mean, you can get around easy. Um, those people don't live in Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma. You ever driven to Oklahoma City? Go to Oklahoma City. I mean, I, I've done it. You go like you're going to uh, – Fayetteville, except you don't turn off on 49 to go north to Fayetteville. You keep going to Fort Smith. And then you get to Fort Smith and once you get out of Fort Smith, you drive basically three and a half hours of nothing. Nothing. No offense to the rural area of Oklahoma. It's, I'm sure there's wonderful people there. But it's nothing. And then boom, there's Oklahoma City. And then you get through Oklahoma City and there's significantly more nothing as you drive west in the country. And I mean, you get out into Arizona and Nevada and Frankly, parts of California, right, that aren't on the coast, it's very rural and there's a lot of land. There's we're nowhere close to being able to put all those people in in uh, in electric cars. And then further from the economic standpoint, you have a lot of people who drive old cars. That's what they can afford. But those cars are are gas powered cars. What what what's the strategy on that? I mean, I keep waiting for someone to go, yeah, that that's great, President Biden or whoever but it makes no sense it's a fantasy
2: cuz i think it's an absolute fantasy well that's a huge problem in terms of affordability i mean look at what look at used cars so you have driving age children i now have one driving age child used car prices are insane they're they're completely insane yes and they're insane for a very basic reason the very basic reason is, is we had essentially a decade of 0% interest rates And so what happens when you have low interest rates? Well, it makes borrowing really easy, which increases the demand uh, for buying cars. So people who normally wouldn't be able to go get a loan for a car can now get a loan for a car. So now there's more demand for these cars. And at the same time, What happens when interest rates go down? Well, you know, durable assets, the prices of durable assets go up because now they're worth more. The flow of services that they're providing, you don't discount that as highly into the future because it's much easier to borrow. So, you know, just in terms of like the time value of money, these things are going to go up in in value. And so – but this also relates to their to, to these same sorts of policies because another aspect of this, which no one talks about anymore, but this is clearly something that had, uh, had a profound impact on this market, is like, do you remember the cash for clunkers program? The cash for clunkers program, we're going to give you money to bring your car and we're going to destroy the car because we want to take these old cars and we want to get them out, right? Like that's going to be what's good for the environment. We're going to destroy these cars. And what do you do when you destroy those old cars is you price teenagers out of the market. You know, they're they're you know, when teenagers start driving, what do they buy? They buy cheap old cars. You want you want a clunker. You want
1: right. you want a car that if they wreck it, A, it keeps them safe, and B, it's whatever, right? You're gonna get the insurance that covers the other side if something happened, but you're like, whatever. If you if you dent up the car, you dent up the car, it's okay. You ran you you backed into a tree, you backed into a pole. It's okay. Just just learn how to drive before you before you drive something valuable.
2: And those cheap old cars are now gone. They were literally destroyed. We just destroyed wealth for no reason. And so, you know, they reduce the supply of these things. Simultaneously, the demand for these cars is going up. And so naturally these cars have become really expensive and they're, you know, and they're and they're pricing people out of the market. But this is the same, this is the same mentality. Is it's all about the goals and it's not about the outcomes. Because if you look at this electric car thing, there's a great clip going around uh, from like, I don't know, like six months ago, maybe eight months ago of Jennifer Granholm, the current uh, secretary of energy. And she's testifying to Congress and they ask her like, uh, you know, is the, is, do you think the military can be on track to switch to an all electric fleet by (laughs) like such and such year? And it's just like, Have you ever talked to anybody in the military? No. Okay, like I mean it's It's insanity. One of the biggest important things that you think about in the military is logistics. Right? How do we get from one place to another? How do we get supplies from one place to another? Importantly. Weapons, food, everything. Yes. How do we get supplies to the front? This is a problem as old as time. Okay. Literally. (laughs) Yes. And and they're and, and they're like, oh, we're gonna bring them in electric cars? Like so you're just gonna be in the middle like I mean, imagine you are fighting uh the war in Iraq and you're just in the middle of the desert and like uh oh we gotta charge up. I mean, where where are you stopping? This is this is the most preposterous. Well, Baghdad thing. <laughs> had a lot of
1: charging stations. I mean, if you think about it. I mean, they really did. There's a lot of places that you could just if you could get to Baghdad
2: you could charge up the tanks. And it's just, you know, it's just preposterous. But this is all of their policies. All of these policies are designed to, like, we want to get to this place where, you know, we don't have any of these uh, cars that produce a lot of pollution out there. We want to get to a place where, you know, people are driving electric vehicles. The other thing that people never talk about is where does electricity come from? Okay. It, does, <laughs> it doesn't come from butterflies and, and fairies floating around in your walls where, you know, you just plug it in and then the butterflies go to work. Right. This is it's it's coming from somewhere, and so the the idea that somehow we're better off if your car uh is charging using electricity that was produced like burning coal that's somehow better than if you just put gas in it like this this is preposterous and they don't and and there's no discussion of that there's no thinking about it so why is there no discussion of that
1: why why can't we have in our country a realistic conversation about this entire idea, because here's the other thing I always say about it is we, we get obsessed in our country with climate change. It's become the new thing. It's like once we, okay, we've taken the COVID thing as far as we can take it. All right, now let's go to climate change. Let's dive in on that because that's the, that's the neutralizer. Okay, great. Just for the sake of the argument, let's say that we're dead on on climate change. We've got to do something. It's disastrous. China's not doing it. India's not doing it. They're bigger than we are. Um, is Russia doing it? Is Russia going to all electric vehicles? I, I'm going I'm to guess not. What is all of Europe doing this? Is all of South America, massive land masses, Chile, uh, Brazil, those are they all going to that? Because if, if not, what are we doing? Why are we punishing our own country At the expense of Americans so that we can essentially, it's either one of two things. It's either, well, no one else is doing it. Why are we, we're not, we're not influencing the rest of the world or we're just signaling virtue, which is what my guess is. I'm not saying that climate change is a hoax. However, I will say this. It's an awfully old planet and there's proof of cycles of the ice age warmed up stuff happened, planet's pretty old. The idea that this country in 40 or 50 years has so dramatically impacted the climate of the entire globe is somewhat illogical. And I have a hard, so I've asked people to explain it to me and, and they will give you some nebulous graphs and such. But I need a little more than that to completely understand why we're wrecking our own economy and wrecking our own country intentionally over this.
2: Well, first of all, with regards to Europe, I'm surprised that some of those places haven't gone back to horses, but I'll leave that aside. The, I don't know, to me, the environmental stuff has kind of gotten out of hand and and let me tell you why. So there are lots of people who care about the environment and some of those people call themselves environmentalists, but there are also people who care about the environment who call themselves conservationists. And those are two very different people. Like, if you go to Montana, you're going to, that's a pretty red state. Mm -hmm. You're going to meet a lot of Republican voters, Republican ranchers, and things like that. And they're going to care a lot about the environment. But their care about the environment is distinct from what these environmentalists want. And what the environmentalists want is the environmentalists have become this very radical group that wants everything to change right now, immediately and that's first of all that's not feasible. I mean, you have some of these environmentalists that are like, "Oh, we need degrowth," right? Like we like we actually need to go through a period we we need we not only need to stop growing, like we need to like go back to like living standards of, you know, a generation ago or something like that. I don't think that they have any idea what that means. They have no idea what that means. They have no idea what when you say that you mean less mobility, less ability to
1: get around, to travel have fewer kids, live in a smaller place, maybe live with more people in a smaller place, less less building, less.
2: less. Exactly, yeah. And this just seems, uh, first of all, this is a non-starter. Nobody's going to go for this. Nobody wants to go back in time. Nobody wants to be poorer. If your if uh, political strategy is, I want to make you poorer than you are today, I don't think that you're going to go very far. And you see this, I mean, these people are not, uh, you know, the the most radical people are not very popular. You know, these people who are like super gluing themselves to the ground and, uh, and things like that and blocking traffic and all that kind of stuff. They're not popular and they're not popular because what are they doing? They're doing annoying things and they want everything to change immediately. I think in general, regardless of whether global warming is a thing, regardless of whether climate change is a thing, regardless of what name we want to give to it. I think that in general, you should want to use the fewest amount of resources possible to accomplish what you need to accomplish. And that includes, you know, uh, resources that come from the environment. But the idea, but but the my issue is, is that a lot of this stuff has no connection to that objective. It's just kind of like, well... Let's look at things about the world that I think are bad, and then let's just end those things. That's not a plan. That's destruction, and that's that's not a plan. And but that's a lot of what what is coming out of those environmentalists is you know things like degrowth or um, ending fossil fuels or or whatever. And and the thing that really drives me crazy is that you can't help but think that this is ideological. And you can't help but think it's ideological because a lot of these environmentalists are anti-nuclear power. And if you really just want cleaner energy, if you want to produce more energy with fewer resources, you should be in favor of nuclear power. But you have these same environmentalists who are like, no, we don't, we shouldn't be burning fossil fuels where you're like, oh, well, okay, let's build nuclear power plants. And the answer is no. Why is the answer so
1: defiantly no on nuclear power plants? I heard Robert Kennedy Jr. say it's because they could never be insured. That you could never get insurance for a nuclear power plant. That it, it, that that makes it where it's just economically unfeasible. Yet I've heard other people say that it's absolutely the solution to our energy problems. It's cleaner. It's cheaper. It's easier to make. Um, Lasts longer. It's more sustainable, all of those things. I mean, every, everything you would want and a power supply, if you will, an energy supply is, is there, could be solved with nuclear energy. Yet it gets nowhere in our country. And the idea, we'll, we'll talk politics in a little bit, the idea of a, of a politician saying, well, if I'm elected, I will pursue nuclear energy. I, I think that would eliminate him or her from the race like that. Maybe I'm wrong.
2: Well, I think part of this is is that existing ener- energy interests are are going to be opposed to it. They don't want uh competition for, you know, sure. production of energy. So sure. so that's part of it. Part of it's ideological. So part of it is like these uh environmentalists think that it's bad for the environment and um which has never really made any sense to me because everything I've ever heard is that it would be actually be better than uh for the environment than pretty much uh every other source that we use. Um, I think that some people buy into this myth of like renewable energy. Like I, I really don't like the term renewable energy. If you want to argue that we should use more wind and solar power, that's fine. But you know, like solar panels have a finite life. Yes. And so that's the, the sun is a renewable form of energy in the sense that it comes up every morning and it goes down every night and then it comes up every morning and it goes down every night. Right. Right. But the solar panels are not renewable. Right. They have a finite lifespan. And then what do you do with the solar panels when, when they're done? Well, you know, they get sent off to, you know, some landfill somewhere. Yeah. And what, and so, you know, there's waste there. There's costs there. Um and then I also think that part of the opposition to nuclear is that people hear of like catastrophic stories like Chernobyl or something like that, and they think like, oh, that's like the norm with nuclear energy is you could have like, you know, some kind of accident or nuclear meltdown or, or something. And um and I think like what a lot of people don't understand about that is that, you know, the Soviet Union wasn't exactly, you know, known for uh, you know, keeping up on their maintenance. So the idea that, you know, that's an inevitable outcome. Uh, It's just
1: false. Um, Let me use that to transition into a political thing you you mentioned a minute ago because I thought this was fascinating. I was telling you that this morning on uh, my walk, my my morning routine is now pretty solidified. I run and then I come back and I do a cool down walk walking the dogs. And I always listen to this political podcast when I walk because I need to get away from sports for a little while before I dive into sports all day. It's breaking points uh, with Sager and Crystal. It's very good. I like them. I don't necessarily agree with everything they say, but I like them. They're very entertaining. They're clearly very informed. And they've begun to get pretty good guests on. And their guest today was Andrew Yang, former Democratic candidate for president, who is now the co-chair, I think, of the forward party. And um, obviously, it's one of the many parties that are attempting to gain traction as a quote third party. And Andrew Yang was, um, uh, being interviewed. He was, it was very pleasant. Uh, I, it was, it was inf- informational. They were talking about the, uh, the worker strike. they were talking about a number of things, but he was talking about how he thinks that, uh, some third party candidates. He mentioned Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, Jr. He mentioned, um, um, Oh, I can't think of his name now. Um, the African-American gentleman. Ah, uh, gosh. I can't think of oh, hey. Cornell West. Cornell West. Thank no. you. He mentioned Cornell West. He mentioned that some of those guys he thought might run as third-party candidates and might obviously not be elected president, but might siphon off enough votes to have an impact, as has happened a couple of times in American history. And he said he thought that would affect, he thought it would benefit Trump. He said uh, his quote was, I think Trump is a mild favorite to win election. And I was telling you about that, and you had a really interesting observation that I've not heard another person say, and so I'll I'll hand the floor to you because
2: when you said it, I was like, oh, damn, he's right. Yeah, I think Trump is the third-party candidate. He's just running as a Republican. And I think that this is evident when you look at the voting, when you look at the breakdown of polling. There are people who have an affinity for Trump who are not necessarily interested in voting for any other Republican. And I think that that is because they don't want to support the Republican party. They're voting for a Republican because Trump is running on the Republican ticket. But if it was a different Republican, you know, they might not vote for them at all. And I think that Trump is already that guy. The Republican party, I've mentioned this before. There's a thing that's popular in D.C. I hear a lot of people in D.C. talk about this. They say, oh, um, the problem with our politics is that we have weak parties. The only people that I hear say this are people on the right. And I think there's a reason for that. It's because their party is the weak one. The Democratic Party is not weak. The Democratic Party is very organized. It gets what it wants. Uh, it, You know, it consolidates around people that they think can win. It's remarkably efficient. They – um. You know they engage in blatant political patronage. Mm. They never disavow anyone. Like if anybody says or does anything ridiculous, like they just refuse to comment on it. Like they never throw anybody under the bus. They never, you know, uh, they they never play that game. Mm. They, uh, they they reward their supporters and they harm their enemies, and they're they're, uh, they're very very successful at this. The Republican Party occasionally wins elections but they're incredibly weak. Like they don't they they don't enact a lot of policy accomplishments. Um I mean the only notable things that have happened, you know, like the like the only really notable I guess accomplishment under the Bush administration, I guess would be like the war on terrorism. And that hasn't really turned out so well. And but, but that's also like completely in regards to national security, it has nothing to do with any of the other goals of the of the Republican Party. We're driven by the search for better.
0: But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over three hundred and fifty million global monthly visitors, according to indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You need, indeed.
2: Party. The, there's a, you hear this all the time among, like, big, like, Trump supporters is their attitude is, is that the Republican Party is just the party of tax cuts. We're just electing people to cut taxes, and that's all that they care about, and occasionally start wars, and, that, and that's what you hear from them. And the thing that they liked about Trump is that Trump came out, and he did what they always wanted a Republican to do. And that is like he just started calling people out on the things that they cared about and the things that they were complaining about. And that's why he got their support. The fact that he happens to be a Republican is not – is kind of inconsequential. I mean I remember – I remember this. Like my my parents live in a very like blue-collar area. There's a lot of factory workers – Things like that. And I remember my dad in 2016 saying to me, like, I think that Trump is going to win. And I was like, you know, based on what? Like everything you read says he's going to lose. And he's like, there are tons and tons of Trump signs up. And I live in an area where most of the signs that are up are like for Democrats. And he was like, you know, there's a lot of these guys that work in these factories. They're listening to the things that he's saying about trade and about immigration and that's stuff they used to hear from the Democrats, and so they want to vote, like, you know, they want to vote for that guy. And at the time, I was kind of like, well, you know, like yard signs, right? This is a, this is like anecdotal yeah. evidence, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, But it turned out uh, that it was pretty accurate. So, I think that Trump is has sort of tapped into the frustration that's out there with voters who want. Who, who are, they're sort of like opposed to the democratic party agenda and they want someone to do something about it. At one time they might've thought that that was the Republican party, but now they've decided that it's not the Republican party. And so Trump is sort of like their last best hope. And so he's their third party candidate. He's the guy who's going to throw the wrench into everything. It's just that he happens to be running as a Republican.
1: I think you're right because we, we talked about this for a minute. When you said that I, I was at first, I was like, I had to think and then I, yeah, I mean, like Ron DeSantis, pretty successful governor of Florida. About 10-11%. Um, Nikki Haley, who had from all accounts a really strong first debate. People liked her. She resonated with focus groups. Whether people like you and I agreed with her is immaterial. The 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 people that watched were like, oh, I'm interested in her. That's like 13%. and She's hit a ceiling. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who before the debate was, was kind of trending up. And then he had an okay debate. He's kind of Petered out a little bit. He's like at seven. And you got all these other cats, including the former vice president of the United States of America at 1%. Chris Christie's at 2%. Um Asa Hutchinson, who for whatever reason is still in the race, which is just like whatever. He's at he can't even get to one. He and the governor of North Dakota can't get to one. They got all these. The nobody. Nobody's at even 15. So it tells you that. A lot of people are like, no, I man, I'm going gonna, gonna to vote for Trump. I mean, even though Trump didn't, he didn't campaign. I was telling you he got uh, interviewed by Megyn Kelly the other day. It was a grilling interview. Meg- Kudos to Megyn Kelly. It was, it was a fantastic interview. She asked all the hard questions. He didn't answer some of them very well. He was grilled on COVID. He didn't answer it. He was asked hard questions about abortion, about gender things. Should girls have to compete against boys. He didn't have much of an answer there. And yet his polling data just remains strong. And he's right now ahead of Biden to the point, like we talked about two weeks ago, where the Democrats are kind of panicking and trying to figure out what they're going to do. And I saw where the Biden white house told the democratic party to quote chill today. You know, he's running, he's he's not backing away at, at least as of this point, but it's, it was an interesting point on, Your part, And it does make you wonder, depending on the outcome of of the 2024 uh, election, could this be the end of the Republican Party down the road? I mean, could this be the beginning of a different party? I mean, our country has not always been the Democrats and the Republicans. I mean, if you go back and do your history, you had the Whigs, and you had the Democrat-Republicans, and you've had other other parties that that resonated, and maybe this is the beginning
2: of a shift. Well, I think the big problem, too, with the Republican Party is the Republican Party— has kind of just become f- filled over the years with people who are just kind of, you know, put off by the fringes of the left. Like, they're not that far away from being a Democrat, but, like, the fringes of the left just turn them off and they just can't bring themselves to to support that side. And so they just kind of become Republicans because there needs to be, some, because you know, they feel like there needs to be some alternative. You know, like, D.C. Republicans, when you talk to them about things, like like people who live I'm not even talking about people in politics just someone who lives in and around DC. Yeah. I know some of these people. They live in and around DC, they don't work in the government, but they just they're they're there. They identify, you know, they they vote Republican. And you talk to them and they don't they don't sound like Republicans. Like not, you know, not a Republican that you would meet in Ohio or Mississippi. Right. They 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 sound like moderate Democrats is what they sound like. And I think that in the middle of the country, there's kind of this revolt going on where people are like, we don't like either party. You know, like the, yeah. b- both of these – like, and, and first of all, like the parties are just kind of not all that different. Yeah, right? it's a
1: uniparty. It's how it's right. viewed
2: more and more is that all
1: you guys are kind of the same. You all go up there. They, they The lobbyists wine and dine you. They get the goods on you or they buy you. And it was your point. I'm not stealing it. I mean the Democrats just move for – change a little faster than the republicans but ultimately they're all heading in the same direction just
2: one's in the fast lane and one's in the slow lane yeah i mean republicans you know a lot of these people in middle america see republicans as just you know democrats with a 10-year lag right like they're just um you wait 10 years and the republicans will just sound like the democrats do today and if you're opposed to what the democrats are doing today you don't want somebody who's just going to sound like them 10 years from now like you want somebody who's going to stand up to that and, and oppose it. And there's, there's not really anybody in the party that's willing to do that. And the thing that kind of cracks me up about this is when you talk to people who are involved in Republican politics, what they will, what they'll say is like, you know, these, they'll, they denigrate Trump voters, right? They say like, you know, yeah, yeah you know, he was brash. Yeah. He said all this stuff you want him to say, but look at what happened when he got into office, you know, like he didn't go after any of these people, you know, he didn't, uh, he didn't punish these people. He does. He didn't dismantle these bureaucracies. He didn't do any of that stuff. And so, you know, he's not, you know, you get him back in there, he's not going to do it again. It's just going to be all bluster and tweets and, you know, all the same controversies 24 seven and all that kind of stuff. And like, you know, so like, why don't you just support one of these other people? And, my attitude is completely the opposite. If if you can't get people to budge, why are you trying to change them? Like you should be, this is, you know, like this is a democracy. You should be trying to understand like what it is that they want. Yeah. Not tell them, hey, because the, the kind of argument that you hear a lot of times is like, well, if you want Trump but effective, just elect DeSantis. Well, the people don't believe that DeSantis is going to, is going to be like Trump, like they. I mean, I think a lot of them recognize that he has taken on these battles in Florida. That he is a competent governor. That he does know how to fight the fight. The problem is, is they don't trust. Is they just don't trust typical Republicans.
1: They view him as the guy who hung hung out with Bush and hung out with Romney, and he's just going to be in their eyes one of them. And that was the lesson of 2016, or it should have been the lesson of 2016, is that. There was this assumption that like Jeb Bush, for example, who at the time was, I guess, the former governor of Florida and obviously the brother of a former president, the son of a former president, and generally viewed as a competent politician. He got railroaded out of the race by Trump. So did all the other traditional Republicans that were running in 2016 against Hillary Clinton. And there was the assumption that the country would just because it was destiny elect Hillary Clinton as our first female president. and The country said, no, it's not, we we don't want that. In fact, we want somebody who's never been in politics before, who's a TV star and a businessman and brash and says all this stuff and Trump gets elected and it's, I mean, you know, the chaos that has ensued, but nobody seems to want to learn a lesson from it. And here we are again with this, Seven He'll be 78 years old. He's got criminal allegations hanging over him. I mean, it's conceivable that he will be convicted of a crime by the time the election happens, and he's leading in the polls, leading in the polls like in the New York Times and CNN and stuff, which tells you that if he's leading in those polls, he might be really ahead in reality. Those polls typically skew a little Democrat, like three, four, five points. So if he's up
2: three, is he up eight? Cause if he's up eight in reality, he's winning in a landslide. Well, and I think too, for a lot of people, it's not even necessarily about Trump. It's about the fact that they don't want the people who are current. The, it, it's a revolt against the elites, right? There's yeah. this, there, there's just this group of elites and it doesn't matter what party they're in. The perception is, is that the institutions can't be trusted, that the elites are not actually elite in any sense of the word. And that, um, and so, you know, there's always some there's always some class of elites right there's always some group of elites there's always some people who are like you know who are the leaders at, at at any given point in time but the thing is is that there's generally some justification for why they're in that position right like you you have like this person who's really you know competent at governing or something like that you have somebody who's really knowledgeable about you know the issues or whatever And what we've watched, you know, essentially since the financial crisis, what we've watched is we've just watched one institutional failure after another and the people are fed up with it. They're sick of it. They want change and they're just looking for anybody who will go in there and actually create that change. And I think one of the big things that hurt DeSantis is that honestly, like when he got in, he had the, he, he had the. He had sort of like the establishment cred, right? This was the Republican establishment's guy. That was sort of like their their best hope to beat Trump and to win the White House. And honestly, I think that that hurt him because people were like, well, yeah, he's done some really good things in Florida. And yeah, he's... You know, he's very competent. Yeah, he's willing to like fight with these people, but if he's gonna if all of his supporters are just gonna be the establishment people, once he gets into office, he's just gonna turn into the typical establishment guy and he's not gonna be the guy that he was in Florida. And I think that's you know, that that's what's harmed him thus far.
1: You know, one of the things that was interesting recently on that podcast, again, it's called Breaking Points. I want to give them credit. They they've done they do really good work, I think. They had a focus group of New Hampshire Republicans. And it really was good. They ran the gamut. And one of the questions that they asked him was, where do you get your news? Josh, not one person, not one said, this is Republicans now, Fox News. No one said that. Uh, They didn't say any of the major networks. They really didn't mention Washington Post, New York Times, they didn't mention the local newspapers. A couple mentioned like local TV or a local radio or whatever. But for the most part, it was podcast. It's the internet. Now, the internet includes like CNN.com or MSNBC or whatever. But a lot of it was uh, uh, they subscribed to news, some sort of a news service. But it was they didn't trust mainstream media they, because they view the media now, which is something you've been saying for a while. I was thinking about this when I was listening to it. I was like, oh, Josh called this they view the media no longer as news gatherers and reporters they view the media as just a, a a collection of elites
2: yeah i mean they're just if the if the if the politicians that you don't like are saying a certain thing and then all the journalists that you're reading are saying the exact same thing you know there there's basically two ways to look at that you can either say okay well this must be the way that it really is or this isn't giving me all of the information that I should have. And the idea that, you know, it, you know, it's always possible that the people that you disagree with are actually right. But the problem is, is like a lot of the stuff that they're talking about is not necessarily something that where there's like a right or wrong. Right. Right. And, and also when there's a narrative, the narrative always seems to be, it always seems to be biased in one direction. And so people are going to look elsewhere. But this is exactly why you see all of this effort to stifle speech on the Internet there are all these you know there are all these people who are trying to censor social media like you cannot go a day without hearing somebody talk about disinformation and misinformation right and you know who's going to who's going to determine you know what's disinformation and misinformation they're trying to shut down speech is what they're trying to do they don't they they don't like that there are perspectives out there and look some of the people that they might want to silence might be crazy. Like some of those people might le- like legitimately be just saying like really false things. Undoubtedly, given the scope of the internet, there are lots of people on the internet who are wrong, right? And there are lots of people on the internet with very strong opinions who are wrong. And so but th- I understand why somebody might be inclined to say, "Hey, okay, these These people are wrong. And if people listen to this, like they're going to, they might believe it and whatever. But that's the point. We live in a free society.
1: Well, we kind of do. We live in a society where just yesterday Hillary Clinton tweets, Hillary Clinton tweets, We're in the midst of a real war on truth, facts, and reason. Assaults on the free press have to be taken seriously. Uh, Days after a journalist who did not do anything except document J6 is going to prison for documenting J6. Literally, we are. Convicting him for exercising his First Amendment rights. He committed no violent crime. He incited no violence. He covered it. He reported it.
2: He's going to jail. Well, first of all, this is a classic sort of tactic that the left uses. And that is, uh, we're going to accuse you of doing what we're actually doing. And it's an effective strategy. Because if I come out and I accuse you of something that I'm doing... Well, when you realize that I'm actually doing it, now you're going to come out and you're going to tell everybody, well, wait, Josh is doing it too. He's doing it. Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, I wasn't doing it. He's the one who's actually doing it. Well, now people are kind of like, okay, you know, like this, you know, he says you're doing it. You say he's doing it. Like, I don't, you know, who knows, right? And, and it becomes impossible to to sort of speculate on. But there's there's definitely an attack on speech. We're supposed to live in a free country. We're supposed to have freedom of speech. And so, you know, part of that, Part of that is is that you have to be willing to trust people to listen to things even if those things are false, even if those things are hateful, even if um, you know even if those things have the potential to do harm if they 're not actually doing harm you know you have to trust people to you have to trust people to be able to listen and form their own opinions and and, and you know come to uh, a conclusion about how they feel about the particular issue, the idea that somehow you know people can't be trusted uh with information like you know you you just you know you're basically just saying that there's two groups of people in society the people who get to decide everything and then mm-hmm. everybody else and that's not a free society and it's also particularly ironic that uh hillary clinton of all people you know is, yes. is sort of talking about like what's true and what's and and what's not true i mean this is this is kind of preposterous because she's she's mastered this this process is that, the, you know, the whole Trump-Russia collusion story came out of her campaign and they know how to run these things. You know, they start these rumors and then, you know, you plant, um, you know, and then you plant this information with journalists and then a journalist reports it and then you use the information from the journalistic report that you fed to the journalists to then justify that now there's proof that this is going on. There's there, there's there's all this sorts of stuff that they do. There are all these dirty tricks and so the you know um, if if she's talking about you know policing speech then you know we've got a we've got a problem because we th- th- we do not want her in charge of you know what should and should not be on the internet.
1: No, and what's the fight back against Elon Musk? Elon Musk was a, was a media darling for the longest time because of Tesla. Then he buys Twitter, and he basically tries to open up Twitter to a degree, and all of a sudden he's vilified, and. It appears that he's at least – that's gotten to him a little bit because the some of the censorship seems to be sort of coming back. It's not like it was, but it it's different. I, I hear all the people in my field, media people, they just – oh, they hate Elon Musk now because they liked old Twitter. Like old Twitter where contrarian ideas weren't allowed? Yeah, that's exactly what they were. And want. that's what it was. Yeah. They didn't want those ideas to even – even wasn't a matter whether you wanted to debate them or, or, or shoot them down. They just didn't want them to exist. And so now we're, we're, we're opening up the idea of persecuting and prosecuting people for having a contrarian view. That's that's not a good direction to go. And the correction on that w- would be dangerous for the other side, right? I mean, it's it's, it's idiotic. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm sitting here stunned that that this is that this isn't the the. Maybe it is the popular opinion. Maybe we're going to see that happen next time everybody goes to the polls. But the fact that more people aren't pushing back with, hey,
2: are we really going to start having the thought police? Well, I think I'm a little bit more concerned about Twitter than than you are. Okay. Because Elon Elon says the right things a lot of times with regards to speech, with regards to like how they're going to treat the platform. But this woman that he's hired as CEO, if you watch – like some of the thing, like some of the events that she's spoken at and things like that. Uh, she seems to be kind of on board with some degree of censorship or at least uh, you know, like throttling certain views uh, in, you know, in the background of the algorithm so that they just don't pop up in people's feeds and, and things like that. Um, like she has this line and this is how, you know, you're in trouble because this is a 100% marketed line uh, you know that they paid. You know she paid a lot of money to some consultant to come up with this line. Is that she said that they were going to start looking at you know lawful but awful speech, and the idea was is that yeah it might be lawful, um, but we don't necessarily want it on our our platform or something like that and. So she's kind of opened it up to, hey, yeah, like there's going to be some degree of of censorship here. And I kind of feel like there's a little like good cop, bad cop going on here where like Elon comes on and is just kind of like, hey, anybody should be able to say whatever they want. And, you know, like this is a free speech platform. And then she comes out and says, well, you know, lawful but awful speech is going to be restricted and it's going to be, you know, um, throttled in the algorithm and and things like that. So I'm a little uh, I'm a little concerned about that. The other thing is, is – and we, and we talked about this a little bit um, a few weeks ago when we talked about like the center at Old Miss that's dealing with misinformation and disinformation on the internet and uh, narrative intelligence. And uh, if you dig into this, what you actually find is that there uh, are a bunch of universities that are starting these kinds of centers. And a lot of these um, centers are getting money from places like the Department of Defense and things like that. Mm-hmm. And they're staffed with people who are not experts. I mean, the guy who runs like the center at Stanford, like typically if you think of like an academic center, it's going to be run by some guy who has a PhD in the subject area. You know, there's some man, some woman has a PhD in the subject. They're in charge. They kind of direct everything and they might have a staff underneath them that handles a lot of the administrative stuff. But they're the face of the organization, and they do it. I mean, the the guy at Stanford has like a bachelor's degree in like political science or something, and and he's running a center at Stanford, like Stanford University. Couldn't find a guy with a PhD uh, who you know specializes in in uh, you know intelligence and all these kinds of things. Like what this doesn't, uh, you know, this is just bizarre. And so you've got all of these things that are popping up, and these it's hard to see these things as anything other than an attempt to police people's speech on the internet. It's an attempt to create a narrative and punish anybody who deviates from the narrative. Where do you think it goes? It depends on how people respond to it. I think people are going to have to stand up to this stuff and say, people, no, people are terrified yeah. to stand up. Well, and that's a part of the problem. And well, and you see it because I mean, it's, it's kind of this bizarre thing with like, uh, you know, With Elon, like it's it's really hard to figure out what's going on with Elon Musk, right? Because on the one hand, you know he hired this woman who's saying essentially that they're going to do some degree of censorship on the platform, but you also have people who are just leaking stories to the media, um, that are that are false. So Elon was accused of shutting down Starlink for the Ukrainian military, and this is actually just like a false story. What Elon did was he provided this Internet access through Starlink to the Ukrainians within a certain geographic area. And so when they wanted to leave that geographic area and um, because they wanted to go on some counteroffensive, they wouldn't have had the Internet access because it was confined to that geographic area. Now, he's providing this service free of charge to the Ukrainians. Like there's no – he's not charging the Ukrainian government for providing this this service. right? And – but the narrative that got pushed uh, a week or so ago was, oh, well, he shut off internet access to Ukraine during a counteroffensive and so he's working with the Russians. That's not at all – that's not at all what happened. But this is the second problem that we have with the media. And the second problem that we have with the media is, you know, in the old days, we had things like Operation Mockingbird where they basically just planted – intelligence people in you know in in positions as journalists um or you know used journalists as uh you know uh to to disseminate intelligence. you know like things the intelligence community wanted out and like now they just like bring in old cia directors and stuff like that to come on television and talk about these things and the idea that these people are are just giving you the god's honest truth i mean that this you know i i mean that that just stretches the imagination because they've worked in intelligence. They might believe that this is in the best interest of the country. They might believe that this is the best interest of whatever, right? I'm not saying that they're doing something that's necessarily wrong. What I'm saying is is that they have a vested interest in what they're saying and they're putting out particular information um, at particular points in time to shape the narrative. And that story was put out in order to, um, you know, to ramp up criticism against Elon Musk, and the story was false. uh you know people who actually looked into this were like, nope, like he provides it within this geographic area. they were going to leave the geographic area and he said, "I'm not gonna get involved with that. I'm not gonna you know extend that out and but you know but nonetheless, it didn't matter because every media outlet in the country was reporting it so simultaneously that, that 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 that's what he did and giving people the impression that you know he's working for Russia or he's
1: yeah you have a you have a dumbed down populace." I was reading a one in six people. One in six people in the country can't name one of the branches of government, or can only name one. Uh, what's my numbers? One in one in three can't can only name one. One in six can't name any. Not that they can't name the government branches. It just shows that they're just completely uninformed. They don't no, no one. If the media tells them something,
2: they just believe it. Well, we've completely de-emphasized a lot of things in the public school system. So one of the difficulties with any government-provided service is that there's no market. Okay, so if I decide that I want to open up a restaurant, I get a pretty strong signal about whether or not I have a good restaurant or not. Right. Are people eating there? Yep. If they're not, then I don't have a good restaurant. Right. Right. But with the public schools, like there's, there is no market because you can't, it's not like if you send your kid to an elementary school and then you don't like the elementary school, you just send them to the other elementary school. No, like there's the elementary school that they go to. And I do realize that there's some flexibility in certain places that you live where maybe you can send them, you know, to, to one or the other. But even when you're sending them to one or the other, like we're talking about like a choice between like two alternatives. And and the thing, and so the thing is, is that the schools are not getting the feedback that they need because if people are unhappy, they can't just pull their kids out of school, right? Um, so we really almost can't
1: have no recourse to even complain. But you're you're right; they can't just pull them out and go to a new school. And like,
2: if you go to a restaurant and you hate it, well, you can go to another restaurant the next time. Well, and so what ends up happening is, is that you have to have a way to evaluate schools. So how are you going to evaluate schools? Well, we've got to come up with some objective measure, right? And so the objective measure that they came up with is what well, we'll have like standardized tests. And so we'll have standardized tests. We'll give the standardized tests to the students. And then the standardized tests um, will, tell, will give us some indication of what the students are actually learning. You know, so if the students are doing well, then that will be the sign that this is a good school district. If the students are doing poorly, this will be a sign of a bad school district. Uh, but of course, the problem is is that this is a very, very noisy indicator because like if you just happen to be um, in an area with a lot of resources, for example, those kids are going to be kids that might have a stay at home mom. They're going to grow, they're going to tend to grow up with like more books in their house. Yeah. Um, they're going to be read to more often. I mean, if they're wealthy enough, they might actually just have like a nanny who takes care of them and does nothing but like watch them and Take care of them, and read to them, and play with them, and do do these things. You could bring in
1: if you had enough money. You could bring in a teacher to privately instruct your your kid or the neighborhood
2: kids. You could form a little mini mini school in your house. And so, what ends up happening is is then you've got uh, certain areas where the students are going to do better because they just have more resources. And so, you know, is that school district really better, or do they just come from uh, you know, families that have more resources. The other thing is that, uh, you know, teachers now have some sort of responsibility for this, right? If their kids don't do well enough on these standardized tests, then maybe they lose their job. Maybe they get a reputation for, you know, not being a good teacher because their students are doing poorly. And so what does this create? It creates an incentive to teach the test. So you, Try to So, you know, you figure out what sorts of things end up on the test and then that's what you teach your students. But that's not the purpose of education. The purpose of education is not knowing enough information to pass a standardized test. The two things are correlated, right? Like, you know, the more you learn, the more likely you are to pass the standardized test. But if people start teaching to the test, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's being neglected that is not going to be picked up anywhere else. Because it's like, well, we got to spend extra time on math today because the the standardized test is coming up, and so we're going to do extra multiplication this week, right? Or we're going to um, do extra algebra this week, or whatever it is, right? You're Just going to spend extra time doing these um, these things to get you ready for for the test. Well, that means you're taking time away from doing other things. You're potentially using time that you would have spent on some other subject, and you're doing. And when you spend time, uh, you know teaching to the test. You're not teaching the other subject and then they're just not learning those things, but it doesn't show up anywhere because where's it going to show up? Like, Oh, you're passing the standardized tests. You're passing all the classes and you're just, you're moving along, but you're not getting a well-rounded education. You're learning the test, which is exactly what happens. Yeah. And this is, but this is part of where, why we are where we are because the things that get de-emphasized is like one of the things that's been de-emphasized is civics. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, in a lot of elementary schools, like they're not studying you know, history. They're not studying government or or something like that. And I get like, you know, little kids, it's hard for them to understand these things, but I was taught these things when I was in elementary school. And there are a lot of public schools that have de-emphasized civics. What was the cartoon we used to watch as kids? It was the,
1: uh, schoolyard school, schoolhouse rock, schoolhouse
2: rock. Yeah. And you had
1: the bill, remember the bill? Yeah, the bill. And, and all that stuff. Well, we, The point of that being effective was we still remember it a long time later. I mean, you didn't completely understand it, but it did give you a very rudimentary, introductory thing into, hey, there's a way that the government works. There's a way that things happen. And, yeah, we all took civics ninth grade, ninth or tenth grade. You took civics and you learned about how the government works. And I don't think any of my kids took civics. Campbell took a government course in college and I had to, we, had, I think it was where she learned it there. It's a freshman in college, it was, but it was an elective because she thought she might be interested in politics. So I was like, well, go ahead and knock that elective out and see if it interests you. And if it does, you can kind of pursue more political science y type stuff. And, but I remember I was basically, it was her freshman year at Arkansas. I basically taught her a government course. We would go I would, we would do zoom calls. I can remember she had a test coming up and Ole Miss had a men's basketball game against podunk state. And I went down into the media room at Tad Smith. And during the first half of that game, or not Tad Smith, the pavilion, I went down, um, into the, the media room and basically tutored her on government through halftime. And then I was like, Hey, I probably need to go watch this game. Are you good? And People were like, oh, I didn't know who you were talking to. I was like, oh, I was talking to my daughter. They're like, we thought you were just talking to yourself. And I was like, well, God, that would be insane. But but yeah, I mean, you know, we did that. I mean, I had Mrs. Cook in high school. I want to say it was the ninth grade. We took civics. And you learned it. You had to. Maybe we took a standardized test at the end of the year, but I sure as hell don't remember it. And now, and if it's this way in Oxford, you know it's this way everywhere. It's, they shut down the school year, basically, in first of April and it's all for the test. And you know that during the whole year, cause I've heard teachers talk about it during the whole year. It's, Hey, we were kind of coaching for the test. We're getting ready for the test, the test, the test.
2: That's not a well-rounded education. No. And I mean, you, especially with young people, you want to just introduce them to things just for the sake of introducing things. Like you want them to just like read interesting stuff, just for the sake of reading interesting stuff you know you want like you should want to introduce them to um you know famous works from you know throughout history yeah. just you know like let's you know let's talk about the greek philosophers or something you know like you you want to give them some indication about these things because there are so many things where you um like you can see ideas that are around now and you can go back to something like Plato and you can find you can find the same sort of debate going on in these like platonic dialogues. Right. And. I'm, I don't think that there are a lot of people who know that we're not having these conversations for the first time, right, that these conversations, a lot of these conversations are have gone on since the beginning of. Time And they will continue to go on forever because we're never going to resolve them. Like a lot of these things are just, you know, philosophical. Right. right? And so you're going to, you're going to have these arguments, you're going to have these debates, you're going to talk about these things, you know, from now until the end of time. And I think there are so many people who actually don't know that we've actually been having these debates, you know, essentially since the beginning of time. There are just timeless questions that people have always wrestled with. And I think that there's a segment of the population that doesn't even realize that. And... That's the that's that's the fault of our educational system.
1: Last thing, next time we get together, the Major League Baseball playoffs will be ongoing. Are the Cubs going to be in it.
2: I feel really dumb because the last time I said they're going to win the division, and now I don't. Yeah, know. That's 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 <laughs> not going to happen. Now I'm not sure they're going to make the playoffs. I think they make it. Uh, they they're they're better than all than all the other teams that are in the running. Well, Arizona, Arizona says, hello. Well, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was just a match throughout up. the, throughout the season. They've been, they've yeah. been better. Um, I don't know. They got Pittsburgh right now. Uh, that's a good way to get better, uh, is to play Pittsburgh. And then they play Colorado. And I know that the last time they played Colorado, that didn't go so well, but, uh, Colorado is another way to get better. And so if they can rack up some wins, uh, they can go into that last week and, 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 and get through, I think. I think you're right.
1: Um, Got to handle the Pirates. They handled them last night. Got to handle them moving forward. Hey, as always, I uh, appreciate the time very much. Yep, no problem. Always enjoy it. That's Josh Hendrickson. That's another edition of the Josh Hendrickson Show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, and we'll do it again. Everybody have a great weekend. Talk to you soon.